0: Hello. Welcome to Bandology, Ministry Part (laughs) 2.
1: Mike. Sean Gina. Sean Gina.
0: (laughs) Eric Shina. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk today. I know we outroed with Ministry in the 90s. Right. But then as soon as we turned off the tape, I was like, no, you know what? We're going to do the side projects because that's a huge body of work that is, yeah, it's worthy of its own episode. And it's got a lot, there's a lot going on and a bunch of different bands, some really fascinating collaborations with different people throughout the industrial music uh, what would I say industrial music oeuvre no Erve? oeuvre Urve. it's a French word it's like this body of work is your oeuvre oh wow o u v o u e v r e
1: I just recently le- learned the word ennui ennui <laughs> that sense of self uh. when,
0: I, when I hit my 30s and I was kind of going through a depressed crappy period when I was working my third shift job I was like you know what I don't have teenage angst anymore because I'm in my 30s right I'm experiencing suburban ennui <laughs> because I am that much of a pretentious asshole <laughs> when totally. I talk about myself like this
1: that's why that's why we're doing this podcast together yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we can be
0: pretentious assholes with each other and it'll be fine
1: uh, yeah, we're realizing to the listener that, uh, you know, we're fleshing this out. This is our fourth episode now. We're realizing that we talked last episode how ministry has a 35-year span career. And we're realizing that about for every 10 years, you're going to get an episode's worth. So, yeah, this is the second arc. And yeah. I'm psyched to hear these side projects because it's some weird stuff. I'm sure is coming my way.
0: Yeah, like the, what's I'm sure is going to be cut out. We were kind of – John was definitely – you know, rapping over <laughs> some, some beats from the, the early Revco material. Um, yeah, so last episode we cut off around 1986, the Twitch album, which is when Al got the Fairlight synthesizer and put him into Europe, the European scene, doing recording and just kind of bouncing between, I guess he was in Berlin for a lot recording twitch and then he was also staying in london a lot during that time i don't know why probably record business stuff london,
1: london's, <laughs> london's a crazy awesome place to be reading the book meet me in the bathroom they were all saying how you have to go to london to make it like if you make it in the london scene and the critics love you london then you're for sure going to be great in the united states so i wonder if that's just part of like the deal uh, yeah probably being a rock star it's just you yeah. gotta go to
0: london yeah just go to london do your thing and press the flesh out in the on the other side of the pond so yeah around the time 1986 that they were working he was working on the twitch album he connected with uh richard 23 from front 242 who was my suggestion band at the end of the last episode oh that was a fun track and also through richard 23 this other dude named luke van acker another belgian So you're working with two Belgians. Kind of unheard of. Kind of unheard of. But like we were saying, (laughs) uh, we we can start folding over the history of ministry as kind of delving into the history of electronic dance music, especially like 80s ministry, because he's working with all these people that were working with electronic body music and other proto-techno genres that... um, that became very influential
1: that's why i'm excited about today's episode because when i hear ministry back to jesus built my hot rod that's kind of the only ministry i knew and that's why i'm so excited for this whole arc of the our three episodes here is yeah. that i i feel like i'm delving into a world i have no idea about but is important
0: yeah and it's also interesting to look at how that throughout the 80s like the later eight into the later 80s and how into the later 80s al got into like crossover thrash and started Making, you know, bringing guitars, guitar was his first instrument, bringing guitars back to the forefront of ministry and his projects, which were throughout most of the 80s, like after with sympathy, were more like dance oriented. Uh, I don't know how many tracks we're going to delve into yet of of all these different projects, (laughs) but there's a lot of playing around of arrangements and instrumentation. I think a lot of these projects, especially Thousand Homo DJs and PTP. Wait, wait. A
1: thousand homo Homo DJs. DJs. Okay.
0: Yeah. There's a story behind that which ties into the Revco. uh, And by Revco, (laughs) you mean Revolting Cox? Yes. Okay, Uh, I'm learning, which is another side project, right? Yeah. Revolting Cox has almost, well, no, they don't have almost as much material as Ministry, but through 80, between 86 and 93, they put out more material than Ministry did. So, So they put out like four albums, which Ministry is like three. Or four. I know they have about as much materials ministry, I guess. So you're throwing
1: <laughs> a lot of names and bands at me. Yes, but to be clear, we're all talking Al Jurgensen Jer- here. Yeah,
0: this is all uh, projects that he was um, basically the main creative force behind. Wow. Revolting Cox were kind of an open door, much more looser, collaborative project. From what I read in uh, th- his memoirs. According to the Luke Van Acker interview that's in there, he talked about how basically everyone would come to the studio. They would have everything set up. People would come in, play their drum tracks, play their bass tracks, play their guitar tracks. Some would get used. Some would get thrown out. Al would be at the end. At the end of the day, would be mixing and producing the whole record. So there's you know you have like ten people coming in and just like laying down material in kind of like an exquisite corpse style on a, oh, on like a twenty four yeah. track studio and then at the end of the day this other guy you know al comes in and has the final say so question for you now
1: yes on the prolific scale 10 being oh god who would be someone insanely prolific i don't know Jimi hendrix or something and like zero being me fucking off on my computer (laughs) doing nothing like is al like in like the tens like he's
0: definitely in the tens i think he was he definitely seems like a guy that just wants to live in the studio and just, like you say, like dick around and just make music on his computer all day. But Wax Tracks Records was they signed him and they would just put out his music. That and is rad. Yeah. He also had the major label deal with for Ministry, uh, which you know had a lot more pressure on that band because it was a you know major label funding it and was a little bit more constrained and focused output, whereas with these other side projects, he was able to do whatever. You know, I think that's a good lesson for any aspiring
1: musician. I hope we get some younger people in our audience, but I think the people who make it, the people that we hear about, and the, definitely people who make it in rock history, they live in the studio. They're constantly doing music. Mm-hmm. Maybe their regular lives are total shit, and you go home, and their apartment's just wrecked, and there's <laughs> all dirty dishes, but... You gotta be like an L, um, yeah, and just,
0: just be in the studio constantly. Just, just do your thing. Think of those like kind of like shut-in guitar nerds that you probably may have known in high school or growing up. Those are the people that are actually like doing it. They're shredding. They're shredding. And if they're business. and if they're able to like you know make the connections to get a band together, that band is probably a working band
1: it's beyond
0: like some trust fund hipster that's like, oh, these three kids like want to jam with me, and we'll just throw our gear into the back of a Volvo and. Smoke weed across the country.
1: That's definitely true. Okay, there's <laughs> two camps. One, you have to play music all the time. Too, you just have to be rich and you yeah. do whatever the
0: fuck you want. <laughs> cool, man. So, what's the first uh, thing you got queued up? What are we doing? All right, I guess we should approach it chronologically again. So, we'll start with uh, Revolting cox Revolting cox formed in '86, and that is the first, really, of the divergent uh, ministry projects. Um, the first album is called Big Sexy Land. And featured on the cover, a vintage photograph of oh, whose grandparents were it? Was it maybe it was uh, maybe it was Luke Van Acker, or Richard 23's grandparents? Uh, I think they were like Polish immigrants or something like that, work, you know working in a shipyard. And throughout most of their album covers, they cut and pasted their faces <laughs> onto all these other pictures. Um, I sent you that that YouTube link to one of the B sides for "Do You Think I'm Sexy."
1: oh okay yeah. yeah
0: so it was like the pen, it was kind of like the scraggy drawing of like three shirtless men but with those oh. those were like reinterpretations of that photograph you
1: know well I want to hear this song but we're having revolting cocks what was it a thousand homosexuals and thousand homo DJs, homo DJs. <laughs> I, maybe we have to double <laughs> kind of what this is all about but yeah I'll stop talking let's hear the okay,
0: song okay so let's hear no devotion that was the, the, the lead sing the single off the album and uh, probably the more famous song from this period. So that's uh, No Devotion by Revolting Cox.
1: So I do definitely hear a similarity between Ministry and Revolting Cox. Oh, sure.
0: sure. And when we were playing it and you were, uh, when we were talking off mic, you kind of immediately made a little comment about how it's very repetitive. Yeah. So it's interesting because um, in the the early 80s or the mid-80s here, Al gets the Fairlight, which is at the time the most... Powerful musical composing sequencer synthesizer available. It's, it was still like a hundred grand in like one thousand, nine hundred and eighty-five dollars. Wow, cutting, yeah, cutting edge! It yeah, cutting edge. And they're saying that they couldn't figure out how to sequence in it because it was so convoluted. Like the the interface was so convoluted. <laughs> totally. Um, so they would just make these long loop phrases, like you're hearing here. And they would just let it repeat until basically they ran out of tape. So that's why all these songs are just, like, all the Revco songs, they're just, like, you know, seven, eight minutes long and super repetitive.
1: That's not what the Belgians were into.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, it was just kind of like, a, you know, using the limitations of their technology.
1: I mean, it's cool. All dance songs are long. I mean, that's what yeah. the, So the DJ can, can mess with it in, yeah. on, on the club, but. Yeah, no, it's it's cool. I just, I didn't expect this. I'm still kind of like in a little bit of surprise yeah.
0: mode. It's interesting listening to as Revolting Cox evolved, too. They did this album in 86, and then they didn't cut another album until 1990. In the meantime, Richard 23 quits the project. Basically, there was some bootleg or unauthorized of uh, well intended to be like a single remix of one of the Rev- revolting cock songs and he was so pissed off that he was involved in the decision that he quit the band
1: just like a, just, just like any other belgian would do
0: just like a belgian yeah. <laughs> but also you know i'm sure there was like a lot of butting of heads with with jurgensen about things because he seems to be a very uh strong strong-minded person <laughs> i believe it yeah
1: definitely <laughs> you know it's interesting You're talk about the equipment i remember um i remember hearing about when joy division was no new order new order was doing goodbye blue monday and he had, like, his PhD mathematician friend help him figure out how to work some synth from, like, what, 80-something? Yeah,
0: and... right. Probably I might have been a fair light on that track, too. <laughs> yeah, it's totally
1: nuts. We take so much stuff for granted these days, like, to put things into perspective. Yeah, you need, to, like, a mathematician friend to help right. you out. It's yeah, like...
0: even when the the DX7, the Yamaha DX7 came out. Is that a synth? That's a synth, like, eighty one, eighty two. That's, like, the one that Depeche Mode really made a lot of use of. Studios would have people on call to help navigate programming the sounds oh,
1: that's so cool
0: <laughs> like b- bands would have people you know they'd be working in this co- studio and they're like oh we want to use the synthesizer and then they would have to have someone come in and help them help them navigate programming it to get sounds that they want
1: you need a musical engineer straight yeah, up yeah that's cool go yeah
0: so the next album was beers Steers, and queers by revolting cox by again. revolting cox and this is 1990 you said. 1990 i went from being the the core three piece of jurgensen Richard 23 from Front 242 and Luke Van Acker to involving Chris Connolly, Bill Reeflin and Paul Barker, who are now full time members of ministry and a slew of other characters that they had kind of brought into the fold from either the Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste tour in 8990 and also brought into the entourage from meeting on that tour. Like one guy named Phil Doe Owens who was a member of the Austin group, the Beatniks.
1: So, music industry question here. Sure. Ministry's on a major label. The Revolting Cocks are on that.
0: They're still on the indie wax tracks.
1: On the indie wax track. So is that kind of just the the main thing separating? It's like Ministry for like the masses, the Ministry for like the diehards.
0: Yeah, kind of. It seems that way. But actually, the last album of the third Revolting Cocks album. Linger Fickin' Good, comes out on Sire in 1993. Ah. It's not really discussed in the the Jurgensen memoir, mm-hmm. but from the way they describe the recording of Psalm 69 and how much money uh, Sire and Reprise invested into that album.
1: That was the one Jesus built my hot rod yeah. that we introduced. Yeah, down.
0: so they are probably just like, you need to put out another record. And they're just like, well, here's this <laughs> side project album with... Uh, man faced cows with penis udders on the cover and send it to the college in a cover of uh, Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the PR was like, so. Yeah, Cox, you want to change the name?
0: <laughs> and they're like, no. No, hell no. And it was the 90s, and was, for some reason, there was a lot more uh, fearlessness in major labels. Yeah, dude, definitely. I, I think the strength of the independent record store really allowed for that. You weren't totally dependent on major big box retailers like target and walmart being like well if you have this on the cover and this is the name of the band we're definitely not going to carry it is and they're life? like well that's okay because strawberries Musicland, and mre or nmr whatever it was called like have zero intra zero complaints about this cover art or the name of the band
1: for some reason even though i hated that place i feel offended that you're not mentioning tower records oh
0: yeah <laughs> because i never <laughs> went to tower Records. There was the one in Boston, and I never I never went to it.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, you grew up in Western Mass. I was yeah. more a Boston kid.
0: Yeah, totally. It was just like my parents like, you want to go to Boston to go to a record store? Yes, <laughs> please. I was like pulling teeth to get them to take me to Northampton.
1: <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. So what do you got queued up?
0: Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're going to hear the title track, Beers, Steers, and Queers, which is probably the most famous revolting cock song featuring some great samples from Deliverance and kind of paralleling the jurgensen uh evolution into metal away from 80s uh, synthesizer dance music
1: it's a new decade let's do it
0: 90s. No, it's different it's weird it's wild Crazy.
1: <laughs> dang so i gotta call the other number and find out when or what how much it is to get in there
0: hmm.
1: probably five dollars find out where it's at
0: I don't know if they're going to have a band there tomorrow night.
1: Somebody popular, you know, because village people are popular. Yeah. Well, they used to be. Well, I don't know what this cock thing is. I think it's a oh, revolting it's a, cock. It, I think it's a um, it's a a male strip show, dance uh-huh. show. Yeah. Male strippers. Hmm. I have to call them and ask them what yeah. is that? What did they call it? The revolting cock. Okay. <laughs> Lord. Okay, then. Well, I, you have fun tonight. Don't worry today. Okay. Well, if you get a chance, come out. Okay. All right. All right. Bye-bye. right.
0: So that's Beers, Deers, and Queers.
1: I had to ask you off mic. Uh, that's not Al rapping, right?
0: No, no. I'm pretty sure that is uh, Phil Doe Owens from be- uh, Beatniks.
1: So this is funny. Is it supposed to be a funny track? It's,
0: it's supposed to be a funny track. I was telling you <laughs> off mic. Uh, the story is, I don't recall the full story, but there was either Ministry or Revolting Cocks were playing through Texas, as you could hear with that phone conversation that was taped at the beginning with the people talking about oh is it like a queer dance review <laughs> um because texans in the late 80s were not hip to tongue-in-cheek things so you come down with a name like revolting cox and they're just like who are these boys? what are they up to
1: well i hope so in this in the city probably so yeah
0: you know austin is the people's republic of austin according, according to well that quote from the one gentleman in uh, bernie
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Bernie's a great movie. Shout out to Bernie. <laughs> uh,
0: but, yeah, so there was this great track, and they just threw all those nice little uh, drop. It. Did they actually have the drop the pants sample in this this version? No, I think it's the 12-inch version that's got the that's a little bit more heavy on the deliverance samples.
1: It's pretty interesting. Like, yeah, I'm hearing a ton of sampling. I'm hearing a hip-hop beat. I'm hearing, I like the distorted drums.
0: Yeah, that's another interesting point with this, I think, is that's like a production technique that you see Al really move forward with throughout the 90s. It's not really super prevalent on The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste. Definitely not on The Land of Rape and Honey, the album before that. But it really becomes like a key part of the ministry sound with Psalm 69 and Filth Pig and the albums after that. Like that really crunchy, over-distorted drum sound. I like Blown Out Drums a lot. Yeah. It's great. I remember reading an interview with them in high school and they were talking about the distortion in the production and he was like, well, I'm always high on acid when I record. <laughs> and when you're on acid, it takes a lot more distortion to make things sound distorted. Whoa. Which I thought was really interesting.
1: I am going to remember that.
0: Yeah, next time you're recording, take a bunch of acid and see how it sounds when you're like trying to like navigate uh, like navigate your intention through sounds.
1: Luckily, I won't be doing... A lot of acid but i i'll keep that in mind it's a good way to think about it that's interesting
0: yeah that's an interest it's a very uh knuckle-headed oblique strategy yeah it's
1: cool <laughs> i definitely like recording drums and just having it blown out on just trying to learn how to record drums and having that i've always been attracted to that sound oh totally it's funny too like i keep hearing i keep wanting to compare this to nine Nails, and you know i love i fucking love nine Snails, but I kind of, I so see the influence. like Oh, was, yeah, totally. Was, in
0: fact, I'm going to cut you off. Sorry, yo, dog, I'm going to cut you off. <laughs> that's but, okay. It's <laughs> your episode. Yeah. The, I was reading online today, doing a little bit of research about one of the other side projects, and the name Jeff Ward popped up. And he was a drummer that played for Ministry and Revco in this period, and then also, during the same time, was drumming for Nine Inch Nails on the Broken and Fixed, maybe Downward Spiral era.
1: Definitely. You know, Trent Reznor, to put on the prolific scale, we're at another 10 here. Yeah. So, but was Al kind of always one... Al's a little bit older, I'm guessing, maybe just always one step ahead of
0: Well, yeah. He, you know, Trent was probably still in high school. He probably graduated high school. I don't know how old Trent is, but I'm assuming that he was, like, you know, just getting out of high school when ministry was just starting, and then... You know, he kind of inserted himself into the ministry camp a little bit, which we'll talk about with A Thousand Homo DJs. But he was definitely a huge fan of ministry, and that was a big influence on what he was doing. So even as like, you know, ministry picked up the guitars and got kind of metallic with Mine is a Terrible Thing to Taste, you see that happen conversely with Nine Inch Nails on the Broken EP. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You know, to talk about that song a little bit, not to gloss over it, but it is a pretty funny song. I know that it's really taking the piss on Texas. So you were saying off mic that they were playing show there and
0: they yeah, just were was, not feeling it. There was yeah, there was some sort of like you know shitty interaction with red, Texas rednecks, <laughs> probably with cops. And uh,
1: <laughs> my partner of twelve years is from Texas, and I just gotta give a shout out that I love Texas. I've been there a million times. It's fucking kick ass. I feel like Texas always gets shit on for, by every other state. Probably. Uh, especially
0: from us, us liberal, especially co- you know, blue blood, college educated New Englanders. Yeah,
1: well, <laughs> you have a, you have a degree. I don't. So I'll <laughs> let you I'll let you take that one. But uh, I do want to give a shout out that Texas is an awesome fucking place. I feel bad that people always take the piss out of it, but this song definitely takes the piss out of Texas for sure. Yeah. I was kind of like, oh, this is harsh. This is some <laughs> low blows here. So is the revolting cox's 1990s there's another album or are we gonna do a different side project uh have, yeah you know? let's
0: just wrap up revolting cox they went up uh, after this they released another album like i said 1993 came out on sire records linger ficken good and it's one of those records that you listen to and you're like wait a major label put this out and sent <laughs> this out to malls across america if you get a chance, you know, go look up onto Discogs or whichever site and look up the cover art for Revolting Cox, Linger, Fickin' and Good. And just think that, the, like, you know, some, you know, 14 year old kid is like, oh, what's this new CD in the revolt in the ministry section? And it's bright yellow. It has like these shirtless, man chested, like cow bodied characters with penis shaped udders. And it reflects a lot of the kind of sarcasm and mirth of how debaucherous and weird the 90s the 90s subculture was.
1: Yeah, this is like Clinton just came in and we're like fuck Reagan on was fucking Oh Shara. yeah, just
0: yeah, it was just like this big rejection of Reagan era conservatism. Remember the gay 90s being a thing? What is the gay 90s? That was like it was like the 90s were supposed to be like the this big decade where the gay gay community finally got to come out and have a lot of visibility
1: yeah i was more you know i was more in middle school and high school but i do remember watching tv and like yeah. having the culture and being okay with it yeah yeah you know another thing i wanted to bring up in the earlier works was that baseline. each time i hear it i'm just like
0: for i wanted to tell her
1: yeah and like hearing that those happy bass lines all this like other like proto metal proto ministry stuff it's like that baseline always throws me off, and it's it's a fun juxtaposition. But so so having this, you're just explaining that to our listeners that so they should Google image. What was the name of the album again?
0: Linger, thick and good.
1: Is there like a homoerotic thing with Al, or he's just super into like shock value and or it's like? I think a- he's
0: just like a super sarcastic person, and maybe you yeah, know there's probably an aspect of like shock rock to it, but I don't think he's overtly playing on a like homoeroticism. I think he's just trying to be cheeky and kind of a little bit of a prick.
1: It's so funny, I keep thinking he's British, but he's not.
0: No, especially with like the, that fake accent that he had Yeah, <laughs> in the early records.
1: I'm talking too much, I'll let you play this song.
0: Alright, so yeah, um, do you think I should play the song I want to play, or do you think I should play the Rod Stewart cover?
1: Fuck Rod Stewart, I want to hear an original, okay, this original other so-
0: song. Okay, this other song is called "Cracking Up, and it actually features a sample of a guitar riff from the Minutemen. Oh, I wild. forget which one of their songs, but it's on uh, Double Nicholas on the Dime, which kind of blew my mind when I picked that picked up that album in like 2005 or 2006, and I was like, I know that guitar. <laughs> 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 and I had no idea that it was a sample. Oh, that's
1: awesome. I love, yeah. when, I, I love when that happens. Yeah.
0: So here's Cracking Up from The Revolting Cox.
1: Smoking that crack stuff really makes you go.
0: here, Al is getting a little bit more confident in putting his guitar playing back to the front. Actually, a lot more confident in putting his guitar playing back to the front at this point. That's
1: funny, because I also hear that's funny, because I also hear a like, uh, return to that early 80s stuff.
0: Yeah. Put you in. Um, i think it's interesting, too, because this song in particular is a great example of that. They just have that loop, and just let it go. There's some other aspects of having a bigger live band in here. At like, like this part, you can hear like a break with an actual drummer playing.
1: Ah, yes, a drummer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, okay, we can do this in the hit pause and let the drummer actually play and then go back to it. Maybe they figured out how to actually program more complex sequences at this point after using it for almost seven, eight years. The technology probably got a little easier at this point, too. Yeah, I think this is still done on a fair light.
1: Wow. Um you know it's taking me this long it's really hitting me over the head now i'm starting to really figure out the tongue-in-cheekness of of al in general yeah and i'm just it's funny too like i'm hearing this sounds to me like a lot of really talented musicians in the studio kind of fucking around honestly yeah like
0: it's it's fun yeah revolting cocks are really fun
1: ah I've, you know, I, it's so funny I just always take all these things so seriously Right I, I think that's why I've never personally Done well as a musician Is that I always take recordings so fucking serious And listen to these guys having fun Like throwing shit together Making it work It's just really impressive mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a I think Revolting Cocks were an interesting Experiment for the band Or not necessarily an experiment, but As what a side project should be, where it's them taking the pressure of what the label, the management, the A&R people are all expecting them to come up with for their albums. The main ministry albums and just doing something that is a little bit more involved in their passions and a little bit more creative for them to do.
1: Rolling off some steam, basically. yeah. Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah, so they were playing, you know, Revolting Cox is a much more fun project than ministry was because it allows the band to play around and not be so serious. But you can also see how that project kind of evolved parallel to Ministry and kept a lot of the production motifs that Al, or production style that I was developing, like the really crunchy, overblown drums. Because
1: now we're a little bit parallel to Jesus Built My Hot Rod. Yeah, the- so
0: this is like the year after that album. Yeah. So Jesus Built My Hot Rod came out fall '91. This album came out summer '93.
1: So, uh, there's other side projects.
0: There's other side projects. (laughs) (laughs) So, back to London in the mid '80s, back in her time
1: machine,
0: back in her time machine. The most confounding project, I I still can't figure out how these two people got together, but
1: I'm I'm excited now.
0: But Ian McKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat did a band basically with Ministry called Palehead. They did a couple of 7 inches and a couple of 12 inches, and it's about six songs total.
1: Pause. Let me get this straight, because I was just reading about Minor Threat and This Band Could Be Your Life. Basically, what the most straight edge... invented straight edge. Not purposely, but... Right,
0: they're the band that like coined the term.
1: That coined the term. No drugs, no alcohol, no sex. And then this fucking teams up yeah. with this Then he rock teams star. up there with
0: Al Jarigas. And I was like going back to the memoir today, like reading the, the part about it, he's just like, Yeah, we got together we were in London at the same time. I was working in Southern Studios or between like the tw- around the Twitch era early early uh, revolting cox era and ian mckay was coming over to work on some distribution plans with southern studios which also had like a record label that distributed you know subhumans crass records oh, a yeah. lot of the uk diy punk stuff so he was over there to meet with them and then somehow they just decided they wanted to work with each other sure they figured out they were going to be in town together and this is also around the same time that Bill Rieflin and Paul Barker were brought in full time. So this is after Twitch is recorded around the time of that tour where they were brought in as hired guns to fill out the live ministry band. So late 80s? 86-ish 87-ish.
1: Okay, mid ladies
0: <laughs> Palehead is 87 to 88. So the first record is 87, the second record is 88. Both Wait,
1: they did multiple albums together?
0: <laughs> they, it's like six songs. They did like a couple okay. of VPs together. And I, I still have no clue. Like When the 33 and a 3rd books came out, I was like, I want to do a 33 and a third book on the Palehead album. And I want to like track down these guys and be like, how did this project happen? I'm so confounded and confused by this.
1: I'm hearing something for the first time, and I've been reading music-oriented books for the past two years now. What is this 33 and a third? We've never
0: seen the 33 and a third books. No, hook me up. What's going on? They're little, like, 150-page pocket-sized books that are just dedicated to a single album.
1: Okay. (laughs) Sounds way up my
0: alley. There is probably a couple hundred of them that have come out over the past 10 years
1: oh my god i just totally ruined any like
0: (laughs) i'm sure you can get them like like the old ones like dirt cheap online now Oh fuck yeah! Because they were all like seven bucks, like eight bucks when they came out. And they still come out. Why have I never heard of this? I have no idea how you missed this.
1: I mean, I'm not a huge. I mean, reader. this is like one <laughs> of those like this
0: is like one of those things where it's like every record store suddenly had the 33 and a third shelf.
1: Newbury Comics has them.
0: Probably. Turn it up. Always had them.
1: I mean, I go straight to the. I when I enter a record store, I go straight to the. You know, used new arrivals. (laughs) (laughs) Everything else doesn't matter. It's like, what can I get for
0: this least amount of money?
1: (laughs) Who needs some money? Who sold something? Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. (laughs) All right. So, okay. What's the name of this project? Uh, Palehead. And this is Ian McKay. Ian
0: McKay. Basically fronting the ministry as a rock three-piece, guitar, bass, drums, occasional keyboards. Okay. I'm going to play the song Man Should Surrender. And we're going to do another backtrack after it, which is interesting to talk about the band Paul Barker and Bill Riefling came out of, The Blackouts.
1: Okay, there's a lot of information here. Let's yeah, do it. Just throwing it out.
0: Yeah, yeah. So here we really start seeing in '87, '88, like Al Jurgensen starting to move the uh, the project to more like guitar rock. Yeah, you know, this is the same time that they're cutting "Big Sexy Land" by by Revolting Cox, around the same era, and comes in and just cuts like a straight up like punk record. Not really straight up, but right. this other kind of weird, gothy, dark.
1: I was gonna say I was so thrown off by the, these two, <laughs> what like two rock theory. Yeah, the juxtapositions
0: are... of these two bands.
1: But I get it, like Fugazi and Minor Threat. It's fast, tight, loud yeah. music, and this is loud and I wouldn't say fast, but like the aggression's there. The I, I, it makes sense.
0: Yeah. Okay, my thought on how this project happened is that Ian e. McKay was more interested in working with Paul Barker and Bill Riefland because of their involvement in the band The Blackouts, who are fairly obscure now. I think they were obscure then. Uh, they were from like 79 to 86. They basically only cut like a handful of singles, uh, which are all available on an anthology CD called History in Reverse put out by K Records about 10, 11 years ago, maybe longer than that.
1: If it's K Records, you know it's good.
0: Arguably, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is it? he did. He like, Calvin Johnson was doing like an archive of Pacific Northwest punk rock music series. And Blackouts was one of the first things he did in that series. They did a 12 inch for Wax Tracks Records, which was their last record, which is basically Al Jurgensen. Yeah. So but like I mentioned before, in the last episode, he mentioned in an inter- that promo interview tape that Arista did that he was really into the blackouts and he was working on producing one of their albums. Uh, that material, as far as I know, hasn't been officially released. Anyway. Any. <laughs> anyway. nerd them. But what I think is interesting was when I finally got this record and I was listening to it, I was like, a bunch of these songs sound like Palehead songs. Oh. From, so familiar. so the blackouts were just, they the blackouts just kind of fizzled out and it just seemed like Bill and Paul had you know material that they were they had rehearsed and recorded they hadn't found a home yet as far as i know the, the backouts 12 inch was out prior to first palehead record as far as i know one of the songs on that ep is called idiot listen to it and tell me what how it sounds compared to the palehead song man should surrender Yeah, when I got this record, I was really astounded that this is like, this is the bass line and drum beat from "Man Should Surrender."
1: Have you mentioned this to other have you, have you mentioned this to other people and like, like
0: shared your theory? You know, um, I haven't. This, what I not since I've really gotten it. Like my main friend Dan Cashman, who we would geek out on this stuff with. Like we don't, <laughs> we're not like super tight anymore. Right. So we don't. You know, we don't hang out like we used to when we Aww. worked together at third shift job now i'm,
1: now I'm getting sad this podcast is getting sad
0: now. <laughs> no, it was like that for, yeah anyway you work a third shift job with one person for like five years when you stop working with each other you kind of need a break from each <laughs> other <laughs> it's like we spent like 40 hours a week with each other we were kind of done
1: we're kind of done <laughs> we just need a breather.
0: um so I got to not do these ums so much while oh, we're listening dude. to music because you're going to have to have, you're going so to have so much yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. We got to tighten up and work on sounding smarter ourselves. Let's, let's go back to the magic of studio production and take away the background music from right now.
1: Sounds good to me.
0: Yeah. I figured you would like that band a little bit. They're a little bit more in your, your palette. That's definitely, so that's early 80s, right? Uh, That was oh, 85, 86-ish. Wow. So it's interesting because they put out, they had like, you know, a couple of singles they did right all in a row, like 79, 81, 82, and then they had like a break to like 85 or 86 when their last record came out. So I don't know if it was recorded at the time of like their other singles and then just didn't find a home until Wax Tracks wanted to do it because these guys were working with ministry or if Wax Tracks wanted to do a record for a new record for them and they went to the studio. But like I said, on the, the Anthology CD, there's a handful of songs that were recorded also around that time that never got released, like in the mid 80s. And those songs also very much have that kind of early 80s, post-punk kind of funky vibe to them.
1: Definitely always those funky vibes. So question for you then, maybe this is an overarching question, I know that we're getting towards the end of this side project episode. So, is ministry mainly the brainchild of Al Jorgensen, or is it a collaborative with all these people that we've been talking with? Yes about? and no. Interesting.
0: Um, back to Luke Van Acker from Revco. He had a really interesting quote in his his interview in the book where he is saying like, Al, after like the early 2000s, after Paul Barker and Bill Riefland were done with ministry and Chris Connolly as well. Al has really, he has a lot of shit to talk about these people. He's really just like these people were parasites. They were leeching off me. You know, they were taking advantage of my drug addiction and to make money off, make to make an exornament, you know, to rip off Al from what ministry was earning at the time. I think it's kind of like they saw Kurt Cobain implode in the the mid-90s and Al seemed like he was on an equally self-destructive trajectory and just like everyone involved with the band was just like, well, he's going to be dead in six months. They, They were thinking that for five years, so they just kept pulling and pulling and pulling. Well, I'll get more into that with... Al's wife that he marries, Angie Jurgensen, he marries her in the early two thousands, and she takes over. You know, she becomes the manager. She becomes the, the CFO of the project. That's like, and a, she, but that was also her job.
1: It's like with Ozzy Osbourne, right? Is there a
0: parallel there? <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. Like that's what Sharon Osbourne did. But yeah, she came. She actually had that as a job where she was working for artists and musicians who had a, an immense amount of cash cash flow, but were bankrupt. And she married Al and saw that same situation with him because Ministry was still a very successful and viable recording and touring band, and yet he was broke and he was begging his managers and band members for money.
1: And she was like, "Let me take care of this." Band and, and she band. was
0: just like, "This, this is wrong." Boo, I got you, boo. And then like called out certain members on it, and they just turned on heel and walked away, which well, kind of shines a interest like but at that point it's like you've been dealing with a really difficult volatile person with a major addiction issue for nearly 20 years what's the last straw gonna be
1: yeah you want to get the fuck out of there
0: right and like you know we've all been there with jobs where it's like what it becomes a toxic environment but you're kind of stuck and then there's finally that one last straw where you're just like you know i don't care anymore i need to be out of this
1: you know you're telling me the story and i'm thinking of jay mascus and blue barlow a little bit too
0: yeah yeah there's is there a
1: parallel there
0: yeah except that those guys have rectified and they work together again that they, is they, true. they reconciled their relationship somewhat Asterisk somewhat
1: there <laughs> no, no offense <laughs> well, to jay i know he he lives near us and i i i do respect him immensely but
0: blue barlow lives in the same town we are recording yeah, right now oh
1: yeah you know i would feel bad i don't want jay to think i'm dissing him here but he sounds like a fucking great asshole
0: oh i'm sure but even before th- like their relationship blew out even before yeah. dinosaur jr became really oh yeah the big band that
1: it is i'm sorry how are we talking about Dinosaur Junior? that's my
0: fault hey you know what they were even on the same label back in the day ministry and dinosaur jr they were both sire bands
1: it's all a large circle it's like
0: that sire was like this thumbprint on like late 80s early 90s college radio music so it's like Smiths, Dinosaur Jr., Depeche Mode, Echo and the Bunnymen, Ministry.
1: Was Sire British? It's British label, right?
0: Uh, no, it's American. It was like the subset of Warner Brothers that Seymour Stein did that was like the punk and new wave oh. thing, and then he just kept that ball I rolling. I just
1: always thought it was British because of the axe on it. That's just impressive. It's so cool how how the lines are blurred between America and England. It's pretty cool. Um, oh, totally. Do you have more side projects for I us? I
0: do. The other side projects are... Uh, much more concise well there's another big one we can talk about but there's a in the 80s there's a bunch of other little one-offs like we talked about there was a thousand homo djs which is famous for bringing trent Reznor into the fold can we hear this one yeah i'm I'm, that's what i'm that's what i'm queuing up right now so they on their second 12 inch they did a cover of black sabbath super which is like I don't, I don't think it was super famous at the time, but as Ministry blew up, and then that song, people started digging into the back catalog, and being like, oh, where are all these other Al and things? They find this, and then it's like, there was also drama because they had Trent Reznor doing vocals on the song. At the same time, he was trying to get out of his contract with TVT Records after Pretty Hate Machine. So there's, <laughs> there are the two versions floating around I have played them side by side, the Al vocal version and the Trent Reznor vocal version. Uh-huh. You cannot tell.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Cuz they actually sat there and they're like they were happy enough with the Trent Reznor vocal take that they manipulated Al's voice so it more resembled Trent's. Which is just like minor like tape speed and distortion, but <laughs> they just kind of pitched his voice up a little bit so he sounded more like Trent Reznor.
1: Real quick sidebar. Uh, about Trent Reznor during this time when he's trying to get off the TVT records and Interscope was trying to scoop him up there's a HBO documentary called The Defiant Ones about Jimmy Iovine and uh, Dr. Dre and there's a I think it's, it's a four episode thing and there's everything about Trent Reznor and that Defiant Ones I love he talks about signing Marilyn Manson he talks about starting Nothing Records uh, if you're a Trent fan, of course, yeah, yeah. you just check out this documentary. But yeah, let's hear some. We've been talking a lot about Trent Reznor, so let's hear some <laughs> Trent fucking Reznor. All
0: right. Well, I, I, I can't guarantee he's present at this recording. <laughs> but this is Super from A Thousand Homo DJs. Oh, do you want to hear the story behind the band name? After the song. After the song. Okay. Practically every one of the top 40 records being played on every radio station in the United States is a communication to the children to take a trip, to cop out the groove. The psychedelic jackets on the record album have their own
1: hidden symbols and messages, as well as all the lyrics of all the top rock songs, and they all sing the same refrain, it's fun to take a trip, put acid in your veins.
0: So that was Trent Reznor or Al Jurgensen yeah. singing Supernaut, a Black Sabbath cover done by a Thousand Homo DJs, uh, an air, a de facto side project of ministry. Or just a one time? Uh, They did two records. They did the Supernaut 12 Inch, which had a B side called Hey Asshole, which is just kind of like a churning <laughs> kind of thing with a guy that's impersonating an abusive cop, harassing. Sure. <laughs> the band. Great name. Uh, sure. Great, great, great idea. <laughs> and before that, uh, about a year before that, they did a, a record called Apathy, which had a B-side called Better Ways. And it's just kind of two gothier, moodier kind of EBM, sure. very distorted sounding songs.
1: So are Trent and Al friends? Are they too much of two alpha males in the room? I know Trent really does collaborate I, I well. I think, uh,
0: so apparently, uh, minist- Al claims that Ministry did a lot of hazing. With Trent Reznor <laughs> when he when he tried to insert himself into the fold.
1: So wait, so Trent was like get me I want in.
0: Trent was the fanboy. Gotcha. And like got involved and they're like, Well, you can you know, we'll do this song. We'll do this project with you, and like you're you can hang.
1: Do you think Al retrospectively is because like, obviously No, he, in the book
0: he speaks warmly of he speaks warmly of Trent. He's got a lot of respect for him, so
1: I'm really trying to like make this beef that's not there. So I'm <laughs> trying to <hear> that everyone's
0: <laughs> No, the beef with these like one-off collaborators doesn't exist that's it's with great. like the people that were in the band uh, the so pe-
1: the people had to stick around without yeah the re- on like Ed. they got sick of them
0: yeah yeah that's where the real schisms were yeah so a thousand homo djs that was uh the first record was 88 the second one was 89 and there was all there seems to be like a slew of like just in the studio working just churning out songs and occasionally they just pull it together and they're like, you know what, this we want to put out. But it's not ministry. It's not revolting cocks. It's something else. Ah. So with the, the name A Thousand Homo DJs, that came from conversations with, I remember correctly, I read about it in the liner notes to the Wax tracks Black Box compilation, which was like their 20th anniversary, whatever, anthology. Of all their you know, they had like a three D 3D, three disc compilation that came out in the mid-90s. And it was talking about like some of these projects, and they're like, Yeah, so they're talking about a bootleg ministry remix that came out. I'm thinking it was actually the Revco remix that Richard 23 quit over. And someone probably just white label pressed it and sent it out. And the label head was just like, you know, you don't need to worry about this. The only people that are gonna hear it are a thousand homo DJs. <laughs>
1: Wait, so... Because guy- they're just
0: talking about, like, you know, it's just the only people that are going to be playing this record are, like, just, de- you know, just the gay club DJs. That's the only people that are going to be interested in it.
1: So, wait, who coined that term? That was...
0: One of the label heads of Wax Tracks Records.
1: So, okay, gotcha. And that, they're like, hey, great great band name?
0: Yeah, and then Al Jorgensen was just like, okay, that's going to be a band name. Like, <laughs> the name Revolting Cox came from when he brought... Uh, Richard 23 and Luke Van Acker over to Chicago to start working on the album at Chicago Tracks. They were in a bar trying to teach Al French, and they were trying to, they were just coming up with all these vulgar French terms to teach him. One of them being selfish, 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 selfish. and which means revolting cock. And so they just started calling the waiter selfish. And he's like, selfish, what's this? What, <laughs> what do you mean, selfish? And like, it's revolting cock. He's like, you're a bunch of revolting cocks. And they're like, we are. That is our band so how you know many, like the huzzah over a pitcher of cheap beer
1: how many side projects have we done today
0: we have season? done revolting cocks one pale head two uh, thousand homo djs
1: three do you have any more for us
0: i have ptp acid horse and lard
1: and this is all in the same decade of the 80s this or? is
0: all in like the same five-year period
1: fucking shit dude this is insane
0: this is someone that's like living on cocaine
1: <laughs> i feel worthless right now i mean I,
0: I think like he was doing minimal touring and then when he was home he was in the studio like he just had like a crash pad and then he would just like be in the studio working
1: one more time kids if you want to make it in the music industry just fucking write and record music just all the time. just do it just, just do, do it. it all the time okay. keep the tape rolling you can fit you can pick one last side project
0: I gotta choose one last side yeah, project. Well, well, then we definitely have to go with Lard. Okay. Uh, which is another bizarro combination, which is the same idea as Pale Head. Okay. Except it's Jella Biafra on vocals. Fuck yeah, dude! This is like
1: this. This episode turned into like a Who's Who yeah. of eighties punk hardcore and, and industrial metal this is great so
0: they're still they're still on good terms lard hasn't done a record since uh 2000 oh so there's multiple lard albums there's multiple lard albums there's two full lengths and two three song eps it's kind of interesting that they started with a three song ep they did their first full length album the last temptation of Reed, which is taking a, <laughs> a diss on the owner of chicago tracks records sure who they would just in the book they just talk about like all the shit that they would do the studio and they would just blame it on the other you know the people working in studio b (laughs) so it's like we're in the studio here we're doing all this work and like people are breaking doors and like you know busting toilets and people are like passing out in the hallways ambulances are getting called for people overdosing all the time and like oh no no that's that's I forget, like, the other band that's in there. They're like, no, that's, like, NWA working down the hall. That's all them. (laughs) It's all them, not us in there. (laughs) But, yeah, so Lard came about uh, because, well, Jello Biafra, being a huge record nerd, would always hit up Wax Trax Records whenever in Chicago, and you got to be good buddies, you know, because it's the the singer of the Dead Kennedys. Of course, if you run a record store, you want to be buddy-buddy with the dude that does the Dead Kennedys, right? And his record label was Alternative Tentacles. Alternative Tentacles also released all the Lard albums. So, again, those were done off of the, I think Last Temptation of Reed was done off the the cash flow of Psalm 69 sessions. <laughs> but then they put it out as a large record on another label. <laughs> hand to hand, hand to hand. Then also, if you want to be a good professional musician, find out a way to rip off your major label and put out as much music as you can on indies.
1: This is interesting. This is like a way to study the music industry.
0: Yeah, I'll, get, I'll, I'll, I'll diverge in a se- with with a couple of quick examples. Uh, Cox Bar, the you know the oi yeah. band from the UK, they got signed to Decca Records. Decca gave them a budget to record a 45. They went in and recorded like 20 songs.
1: Because it's a punk band,
0: right? Because they're a <laughs> punk band and they're all they also just have like a solid work ethic and they're like, well, you know what we can do an album's worth of material, give you the 45 and sell the album to another label.
1: That's what like the Minutemen were like too. They're like, okay, you're going to give us this money. We'll like, just stay here. Record all
0: these songs. <laughs> right. But they also only worked with the indie label SST. Right, definitely. My bad. Um, but that's, but that's also that work ethic too. What's your second example? Uh, Melvin's in the nineties, they consistently broke contract with Atlantic and would use studio outtakes and just like alternate mixes and just give them to other labels to record, to put out as seven inch singles, just like constantly. And the, the, and the label's like, pissed? well, you're not supposed to do that, but I guess, can we get like a 25 copies to give away as like promos to college radio stations? Oh, weird. And they're cause they were just like, oh yeah, we did, we did this. And the label's like, that's breaking contract, but yeah, you know, like, well, it's already pressed. We already have copies. They're like, well, give us some so we can send them to college radio DJs. <laughs>
1: So lard was the lard.
0: Lard was kind of. I think lard was like you know was laundering money, similarly oh, from yeah, sire man. to do cool. that. It's punk rock, right?
1: It is punk rock. Let's hear this shit. So
0: yeah, 1989, uh Jelly Biafra back in Chicago again, and had been talking with Al Jurgensen, and they wanted to get together and record. He just thought they were just going to like meet up and hash out some details, but the whole band was in the studio working, and they're just like, no, screw it, let's just lay down some tracks, and they. Through him in the vocal booth and jello didn't come with any prepared lyrics so he just pulled a bunch of like random stuff like he always has like apparently he always carries like sketch pad like sure. pads you know just jotting down ideas so the first track from lard the power of lard off the ep the power of lard <laughs> from 1989 uh, is just him like going through a whole bunch of like these non-sequitur just like lines he was coming up with that we maybe maybe would use for something else in the future. Um, and again, like Palehead was, it's a fast and loose, much more punk rock approach to their music. Still very parallel to what Ministry was doing with Mine is a ther- Terrible Thing to Taste and Psalm 69. But it's a side project. They're having fun. It's yeah. fast and loose. Yeah. You know, it's hard to... It's, separate jello biafra from something being punk rock but it's it's way punk rock let's
1: do it much jello biafra sounds
0: like the guy from the b-52s <laughs> oh i know <laughs> until now <laughs> um, again this was like another one of those playing in bed at night listening to college radio song comes on the radio and i'm like is what this is jello biafra <laughs> singing for ministry and it was it was i was just like what the <laughs> it was just like mind blown i was just like oh ministry i just discovered i absolutely love that band dead kennedy's i knew. i absolutely love dead kennedy's i was just like this is you know this song it's the first song on their first record you know i told you that little background where he's just like reading yeah you know he just had like pages out of a notebook he was just kind of putting together and reading i don't think they matched it's that it's that when you're when you're doing some when you're doing a project and you just have that that initial excitement and energy behind it Mm -hmm. and you're just like let's just go just go it's like that's the magic that's in this song it's like i've been listening to this at first it's like what 92 93 and it's still just like ah
1: totally i can see that it's like you know like the
0: hair on the back of my neck stands up but this was my expectation for punk rock and hardcore, going through like my teens, and it—you it, know—things were weird in the '90s. But this was—I don't know—this was like such a key of like the energy. It's just like you just can just imagine the Circle Pit erupting as soon as the guitar comes in. Did
1: they play live?
0: Jelly Biafra joined in on the band's 1990 tour, and this became a staple of their live sets. Get the oh, so <laughs> it's just, like. B operas at that time he was just doing these random side projects with other bands like these random one-off records and I don't know if had the time to go on go on a ministry tour so yeah seven and a half minutes of this and it was just like it's just unrelenting
1: there's no short ministry songs is there
0: uh, later on um, they get into like you know under five minute songs. <laughs> well, especially like the later record Like after Psalm, Psalm 69 Like all the songs are kind of like You know, they start getting as like radio friendly links Like, you know, four and a half Five minutes And then after that It seems Well, I'm not sure about Yeah, Filth Pig It's still kind of like Longer rock songs And then after Paul Barker Exits the band And they're doing more like The thrashier material After like Houses of the Molay 2004 and onward The songs definitely get shorter
1: so something I'm really learning from this is that you're going to the studio with Al, you're going to meet with him, you're going to just end up in the studio and you're going to record a track. Dude, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And there's
0: yeah. there's just like tons of one-off takes with um, Ogre, the singer from Minish- uh, from Skinny Puppy, does vocal like guest vocals on a bunch of songs. And one of the things I kind of wanted to bring it back to was the uh, 2015, I think it came out, Cleopatra records released the ministry tracks box set that's tracks with an X uh-huh. and it's a uh, seven CDs and an LP you know lavish embossed BS packaging sure it's like three CDs of unreleased or hard to get a hold of material and then all the Revco albums and all the wax tracks era side projects so there's just tons of bonus material in there I've been listening to a lot of it on YouTube. A lot of the different was like say, demos. i like to say,
1: Mike Barrett, do you own this? Do you own I this don't own this? it.
0: I I, I want to throw down the 150 and buy it. 150? I'm sure I will I'll at some start point. You, go
1: fund me. <laughs> <laughs> get, bring, get Mike his ministry. Yeah, go right. Ministry and
0: then like the live, the the LP is a live album from like one of their their concerts that were, got recorded in the early 80s.
1: Holy shit! So, you played some stuff from the 90s, but yeah, this is all in a, like a 10 year period.
0: Yeah. So this is like. What what the art we're talking about here is 82 to 81, 82 to like 90, 93 with the last Revco album. And we see Ministry go from being like this kind of skeletal, funky, post-punk band to doing this really opulent label-forced, management-forced synth-pop album to doing darker electronic dance music like gothy, industrial, whatever you want to call it. And picking up these other connections and these other collaborations on the way that bring in the idea of a rock band and a punk ba- punk and metal band to the core of what Al's creative process is. So you see Lard is like, it, that's just like a straight ahead thrash record. Yeah. Um, with Jella Biafra just doing these bizarro rants on top.
1: I wanted to give a shout to Jay Z because Jay Z never writes down his lyrics; he keeps them all in his head. He's on the prolific scale too. I just want to throw him. Okay, lyrics. yeah. <laughs> if we had Jay Z in the studio that day, there maybe it would have been even like a more cohesive uh, <laughs> ly- lyrical adventure.
0: So it's yeah. So it's really interesting to hear all this stuff bouncing around. Um, what should we do to bring it out? Do you that, want me to? Do you want me to do a suggestion, or do you want me to? play one of those deep cut B-sides from the the box set.
1: You're smiling. I think you want to play a deep cut. I do B-set. want to
0: play a deep cut. I have I also have a I also have a suggestion queued up on my on my iPod.
1: So let's so we're going to do one more ministry episode the right. next one. So stick around. And that one's
0: going to be dense cuz that's going to be 1988 through this year. Okay. So we're going to still have to cram like 20 years. But I think it'll move a lot faster because Ministry doesn't bounce around quite as much. Okay. So let's go back to the tracks box set. And I went and uh, procured through the magic of the internet (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the CDs of material I don't have.
1: So Al altogether probably has over a 1,000 songs. Uh,
0: I can't even imagine how much material is on the cutting room floor.
1: Wow. Uh, Eat your heart out, Lissy Willis.
0: And I'm not even (laughs) sure, like... Cleopatra records is kind of known for being a, a semi bootleggy label. So I'm not even sure who was in charge of authorizing them to do this box set That's or if, or even roll, it, baby. or even if uh, the rights to the wax tracks material still goes back to Jurgensen or the producers of the music, or if it's just been floating around since wax tracks folded after the two co- the two co-founders passed away in the past 20 years.
1: So you're going to take us out?
0: You know what? Let's just do something nice and sarcastic from a 1983 demo. 1983?
1: 1983,
0: going way back to the With Sympathy days. Let's be happy. Okay. Today's episode of Bandology is brought to you by Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm is a great one-spot go-to for uploading and distributing your podcast across the internet. They'll take care of putting your show up on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, and dozens of other smaller services that you probably don't even know about. All you have to do is set up an account, which is free, and Anchor also 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 we'll set you up with sponsors so you can do ads like this one to start earning money on your podcasts right away so check it out anchor.fm and if you're just looking to stream podcasts download their app from your app store of choosing that's anchor.fm or the anchor podcast app check it out spread the word and enjoy spotify i mean anchor i mean bandology